morning, everyone. My name is John Elmore. I serve here within Regeneration and Pastoral Care. I love being with y'all, so good to see you, family, here on Sunday. The, the playlist that you just saw, like that's our summer series right now, playlist as we walk through the Psalms for the next six weeks. What that made me think of initially when they told me they were doing that, I'm like, oh, dude, I love, like that locks into my brain. That takes me back, child of the 80s. I'm like listening to Walking on Sunshine, uh, summer of 69, Jack and Diane on my BMX bike, just cruising the neighborhood. And I've got, it's like nostalgia, right? Like you hear these certain songs and it takes you back. Like I, I know, I see myself as a little boy singing those songs as they've been like embedded and you just ruminate on them. And God in the same way has given us a list, a song list, a playlist within the Psalms. These 3,000 year old Psalms that he's given us in the same way that give us that nostalgia of what the Lord has done in the past that he promises to do in the future as he walks with his children and delivers them and sets him free. And so this beginning of playlist is a gift to us from the Lord as we walk through today in particular Psalm 34, which is a Psalm of David. I uh, chose this one, there was, a, there was a list of them. We sang it earlier. This is Shane and Shane's song, the magnify the Lord, come let's exalt his name forever. This is what we just sang and now we're gonna walk through it. We're gonna go through it verse by verse. But we're not gonna start in Psalm 34 because within Psalm 34, the Lord has, he doesn't do this with all the Psalms. Sometimes it's just like, begins right out. But on this one in particular, he left a contextual clue for us. That's not actually a verse at all, but David, as he gave this over to probably the priest at the time, wrote it down, and it's this. It's called a superscript. It's written right above the psalm, and it says this. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he, the king, drove him out, and he went away. And it's like, wait, what? Changed his behavior? Like, this sounds like something I tell my kids. What is that? And so contextually, you jump back, and it's 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. And this, y'all, as you look at this and what's going on in context of the psalm and when it was written and who it was delivered to, it's, it is amazing what God has preserved in a scripture and the, the way that he gives it to us for our instruction. So here we are. Let me, let me set it up first. So David, little shepherd boy, Son of Jesse, he's got all these sons. Samuel said, hey, go find Jesse. You're gonna anoint one of his boys as king. Saul is king right now. Saul's proud, tall, thinks he's got it all under control, but, but he like, he's, he's selfish. He wants the glory for himself. So God's like, all right, kingdom stripped for you, raising up somebody else. He sends Samuel, the prophet, to go to Jesse's house. He's like, puts all, he parades all his sons in front of him. He's like, not him, not him, not him, not him. He's like, nobody? He's like, well, there's another kid, but he's watching the sheep. He's the youngest. He's like, bring him here. I'm not, we're not, we're not going to sit down until I meet him. And as he comes forward, David is like, that's him. The Lord says to Samuel, that's him, anoint him. So he's anointed as king. And uh, then you know the story about David and Goliath. Like, then he's like running back and forth. He's an errand boy. You know, he's, he's been anointed. His brothers are off at battle, fighting the Philistines. Goliath, famous story, and, and he comes upon this, and he's like, who defies the armies of the living God? And so he picks up five stones, runs to the battle, slays Goliath, all that. He was just taking food to his brothers. That, that's how David's even there. And, and that, from there on out, then Saul gets depressed, but David can play the harp. And so it like kind of puts his mind at ease, but then he gets jealous. Saul gets enraged with David. And, and, so, and so he's like literally trying to kill him. It's like this love, hate, cat and mouse 
Well, here, it's escalated enough that Saul's like, you're dead. I hate you. I'm coming after you. And so David's fleeing. Now, here we are. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. This is nuts. It says, and David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, if you're not up on your Philistine kingly lineage or your geography within the like, Hebrew scriptures and whatnot, it doesn't mean much. You're like, Achish, Gath, whatever. Next, get to the next verse. This, like, when I saw Gath, I was like, hold on. I've heard of Gath. Why have I heard of Gath? That sounds so familiar. Flip, 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 flip. Oh, shoot. It says Goliath of Gath. That was his hometown. That like nine foot tall bad dude. The standoff between Israel and the Philistines. Goliath was from Gath. Now you've got David going into Gath. What is he doing? This is like the president walking into Islamabad, Pakistan to hang at bin Laden's compound. It's like, what is going on? Why is David going to Gath? And I think why he's going to Gath is because Saul was afraid of the Philistines. That's why David was even in that battle is there was this standoff and Goliath every day would be like, who's going to get me? You guys beat me. We'll be your servants. We beat you. You'll be ours. And, and Saul's just there watching. He's not going to do it. Then David comes forth, slays him. And what happens is he just like slays him with the singing stone, but then he walks up to this fallen giant and he takes the giant's sword out of his dead hands and cuts his head off with his own sword. And just prior to this, as David's fleeing from Saul, he goes to this priest because he's hungry. He's like, hey, I need some bread. It's like, okay, here's bread. He's like, do you have anything else? Do you have a sword or a spear? He's like, well, we have the sword of Goliath. And he says, give it to me for there's none like it. The last time David held that sword was when God had given him deliverance from the enemies of Israel. And now he's holding it again. He's got the sword in hand and he is walking into enemy land. This is bizarre. And the thing is, as I read that, I'm like, oh, we do the same thing. Sword in hand, walking into enemy land. The sword of the spirit, Ephesians 6 says. Hebrews 4.12, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to pierce the soul and lay bare before God everything. We have sword in hand. Like we've got ample Bibles as American Christians. We've got them coming out of our ears, you know? And yet we walk back into enemy land just like David did. Like, what are, what are we doing? This would be me having a Bible study in a bar, but not just like sitting in a bar. Like, that's weird. Why'd you go back into enemy territory, recovering alcoholic? But like having pints of Guinness, getting drunk. Like, what? But, but we do this. Tim Keller has rightly said that we have functional saviors. There's the eternal savior, Jesus, who delivers us from our sin, from Satan, from death. But when we get tired of waiting on him, we'll go to a functional savior who will meet our need in the moment, who will give us a little bit of relief, albeit poisonous, fleeting, life-taking instead of life-giving. We'll go to those functional saviors instead of the true savior. And here you have David doing the same thing. He's got sword in hand, reminding himself of the deliverance of God, and he runs into enemy territory. So you would be wise, I would be wise to think about my functional savior and where I'm running back, those sword in hand of my deliverance back in the enemy land. It continues. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Saul was still king. They already recognize him of like, 
dude, Saul killed his thousands. This guy killed his 10,000. This is the king. They acknowledge what had not even yet come to pass. Verse 12, and David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Akish, the king of Gath. Listen, so he changed his behavior. There it is, the superscript from Psalm 34. Before them, this is nuts, and pretended to be insane in their hands. He's acting crazy. This conquering, anointed king is now scared, and so he's just acting crazy because he's fallen into their hands. He's made marks on the doors of the gate and let spit run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servant, do you see this man is mad? Do I not have enough madmen in my kingdom that you bring me one more? Get him out of my presence. It's like, what are, what are you doing bringing a madman to me? David's literally in the clutches of his enemy. He's like, get him out of here because he's faking to be crazy. Like, it's been said of the Bible that man wouldn't write it even if he could. Meaning, what, what people group would be like, well, here's a good idea. The anointed king of Israel, King David. Let's tell the story about the time that he acted crazy in front of his enemy and let spit run down his beard. And that's how he got away. That's valiant. And it said, just as it says he, that man wouldn't write it even if he could, that he couldn't write it even if he would. Why? Because it's replete with this perfect morality. It's replete with the prophecies, hundreds that can only be fulfilled in Christ. It's replete with these transforming truths and these historical narratives that you find all throughout archaeology. The more they dig, the more this thing becomes true. And every other holy book that P.S. is not holy could never put a candle to this. It's crazy. It continues. Verse 20, or chapter 22, verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Adullam is a Hebrew word that means refuge, place of hiding. He's now stuck between two kings. He's got King Saul and King Achish, and here he is in a cave. Not a good day. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him. And listen, listen to the Christology in this, the Christ-type figure. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, distressed, in debt, depressed, gathered to him, and he became commander over them. Uh, it says, and, and there were about 400 men with them. 400 men, 400 of like society's derelicts. It's like, oh great, I got the debtors, the distressed, and the depressed, awesome. Let's go to war, Lord. And we're in a cave, and we're stuck between two kings. What's going on? Like why would, why God would you send me these? And it's exactly what God does. He did it then, you know what this passage mirrors? 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul writes and he says, Dear brothers, consider that not many of you were noble in your birth. You were not strong or wise, but rather you were weak, shameful, oppressed, the things that were not, to call them things that are. He's like, this is what God does. He just chooses the ones that are in need, that are desperate, because so often we're like, we don't need you, God. I'm an American. I got money. I, 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 what need do I have? It's the humble that come before him. And there he is gathering these before him. And then, you're not going to find this in the Bible. This is, this is what I think happened. But it's amazing. Psalm 34 is an acrostic. Meaning it's like the Hebrew letters, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet. 
It's A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's a mnemonic device to help you memorize it. I think what happened is, is he fled from the king. It says right there in the superscript that he wrote this when he was fleeing, when he changed his behavior. I think he's sitting there in the cave, pinning Psalm 34, and then I think he gives it back to the distressed, the depressed, and the indebted with this mnemonic device, like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you to memorize this. I want you to know the goodness of the Lord. I want you to taste and see the Lord is good because they needed that good news. And so do we today. So now we are gonna pick it up with that in mind, Psalm 34. Verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. The way that I would like, I put a subtitle over Psalm 34 is that we, we sing in our suffering. He is sovereign over the storm. And just like birds sing in the dark because they know the dawn is coming, so do we as Christians, even in this present darkness, even in the afflictions, even in the suffering, we lift our voices to sing for the one who is sovereign over our sorrow. And you're gonna see David do this. He's writing it from a cave with those, those 400 like ragtag bunch. And yet this is what comes out of his heart and mouth inspired by the Spirit. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It, like, it sounds kind of like when Paul says, uh, give thanks in all circumstances, pray continually. It's like, man, really? Like at all times? Like I'm, I'm driving, I forget. Like I can't do it always. Like sometimes I gotta talk or I gotta you know, talk to my kids. Or, like really, always? What, he, what David is saying is after this deliverance, he's like, I always will. I will always Boast in the Lord. I will always praise him. I will always have the praise and blessing of the Lord in my mouth because of what he's done. I'll never forget. And a couple of weeks ago, just passed, and you may have heard or seen, but my wife was diagnosed with cancer, breast cancer. And she, when we found out about this, we didn't, we didn't have praises coming out of our mouth. We weren't blessing the Lord. I mean, I was like staring into a wall and she's crying and we're like, what? I mean, his bomb went off. But our community group came around us. They came down and they're sitting with us and, and they were singing and I did not sing. I'm just like staring at the floor. Felt out of body, like a bad dream and bad movie and I'm just staring at the floor. But by the, by the third song, I started singing, like just a whisper. But it was this, like, I can praise you even in the midst of this. Not I can, I must. Like what else am I gonna do? I've got to recenter, refix my eyes upon you. And so we have, and so we continue to. Job says, when he finds out that he loses his family, his livelihood, it says that he tears his clothes, shaves his head, falls to the ground, and worships. He worships. Naked I came, naked I shall go. The Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And praise comes out as the pressures increase. Verse two, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Look, David could have boasted in a lot of things. He could have boasted in, I am the anointed one of Israel. I'm gonna be king. It ain't gonna be Saul. He's on a shot clock. I'm the new guy. He could have boasted in the fact that he's like, I got Goliath's sword right here. He could have busted on the fact that he's like, dude, I just tricked the king of a kiss. I was, I was drooling on my beard. Got that sucker. He could have boasted in so many things. Could have boasted that he conquered Goliath. Instead, he boasts in the Lord. He knew exactly where every single victory, whether Goliath, whether the anointing, whether rescuing the lamb for the bear and the lion's mouth, 
the deliverance from King Kish, he knew right well, dude, let me boast in you and you alone. None of it is from me. None. And yet I think we do opposite. I think we're like, no, no, I'm the one that worked hard. I showed you my resume. Look at what I've done. Look at my accomplishments. Do you know my education? My investments, my bank account, my zip code, my square footage, my car, my wife, whatever it may be. We put all these boasts like we did something. Let me tell you something, you didn't do anything. We need to be more like David's like, let my, let my soul boast in the Lord. And it's not my idea. Listen to these scriptures. First Corinthians 4, 7 says this. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And you might think like, no, I worked hard in school. It's like, okay, cool. Who gave you your brain? You didn't make your IQ. Yeah, but a, you know, good school district, and then it went to an Ivy League, whatever. It's like, no, wait, well, wait, like, did you, did you just like create that opportunity? Was that you, you self-made man? There's no such thing as a self-made man. That's self-deception. I was in Haiti once for a summer at an orphanage and this orphan said, why are you an American and I'm a Haitian? I was like, oh, <laughs> little boy. I live in the United States of America. That's my citizenship and you live in Haiti. And he, and he just looked at me like, you idiot. He's like, no, why am I Haitian? And what he was saying to me is like, why did God make me an orphan in Haiti and you have a car, education, you fly wherever you wanna to go to come to here and go back and you've got food, I don't even have clean water. Why is that? And that's Acts 17, it says he determined the times and places that each one of us lives. You had nothing to do with anything, nothing. You didn't decide where you were born, you didn't decide the parents or the family you were born into or lack thereof. You didn't choose your race. You didn't choose your physical abilities. You didn't choose anything. Everything's from God. Now, let me tell you something. It even says in Deuteronomy 8 that he gives us the ability to produce wealth. None of it's from you. John the Baptist says a man can receive nothing except that which he receives from heaven. And yet we boast. And, and some even scoff. It's not just that you exalt self, you tear down others. Racism. Thinking like, well, I, I don't like that people group, that ethnicity. They're different than me and I'm better than them. That's evil. You are scoffing at the creator God who made all people in his image. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship the Lord. And who are you? Find yourself striving against God in doing that. You're mocking the creator in his creation or class or physical ability or whatever it may be. Boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. He's talking to these 400 derelicts in a cave. Let the humble hear and be glad. Let me tell you something. You can't hear if you're pride. Pride is deafening. Pride is spiritual suicide. To think that you somehow, we somehow are just like, now nah, I'm good, then you will die and you will not be good. There'll be hell forever. But let the humble hear and be glad. The humble's like, dude, I'm destitute. I, I am impoverished spiritually. I got, I got nothing, God. I got nothing but sin to bring before you. And it's like, then you are humble and be glad because that is exactly why God came. Verse three, it says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. The word magnify is to grow and to increase. It's like, let the Lord be bigger than all. 
Look, I'm stuck in between two kings. I'm in a cave. I got you guys. Let's magnify the Lord. Let's, let, let's make the Lord bigger than all. Let's examine him that everything would become big, a magnifying glass that you see the intricacies and the details. And, and as you look, it's bigger and growing and increasing. He said, let's do that together. And let us exalt his name together. I, uh, well, let me say this. When you praise God, your problems get smaller. And I, and I found that recently. Like on June 27th, when I was preaching, I walked into this auditorium for the first time with my wife's cancer diagnosis. And it was like, I mean, I was still like in shock, I think. And everybody's singing. And then uh, slowly I'm like, I, I gotta lift my hands. And I need to sing. And I was compelled and moved to sing. And, and when I say I lift my hands, it's not because I'm like particularly charismatic or something like that. It's because in 1 Timothy 2, he says to, let men everywhere with holy hands lifted high, lift up praises. So I'm like, you say it, I do it. And you see it in the Psalms. And I see it with my kids, like needy little children with their hands up, running to me in need. And I'm like, I, I need this now. And I didn't feel like singing, just like that night with community. But you know what happened? I had 3,000 souls singing behind me as I sat right there, just like reverberating, exalting his name together. And I started singing. I was singing my heart out as I like re-centered, exalted his name, magnified and reminded that, that, that though cancer and affliction and suffering and all that, like you're above it all. I was in Sudan for a summer and uh, in church, there would, there would, people would, you know, they're worshiping and, and they worship, they, they worship strong. And they're dancing, and I see them like dancing with a Bible over their head. I'm like, that's a cool dance move. <laughs> they were saying, God over all, no matter what befalls me. I mean, there were, there were landmines in the field. It was decimated, Darfur stuff. Like, and, and there they are, Bibles over the head, like God over all, exalted over all. My problems become smaller as he is exalted. Verse four, I sought the Lord. And he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be afraid, ashamed. The, the equation here, it's prayer, providence, and peculiar. I sought the Lord, prayer. He delivered me from all my fears, providentially, through strange ways. He will deliver you. He bring you through. And then there's this peculiar thing that happens. It says, that we all with unveiled faces are reflecting the glory of God. People are like, what is it about you? You strange Christians. You go through these furnace of afflictions and yet you're able to sing, yet you're able to have joy. Yet you're able to like express love when you are hard pressed or reviled or persecuted. Beth Bernard, a member here in our community group, wife of Shane Bernard who just who wrote that song, uh, Psalm 34, she just lost her father a year ago. It was just the year anniversary, he died of cancer. It was a long battle with cancer. He was in hospice care there in their house, like in the family room, middle of the house. It was, it was, it was horrible. Um, he's at home with the Lord now. And as Beth walked through that, as, as she walked through that season, seeing her mother grieve and her siblings and the grandchildren and, and her own dad saying goodbye to him, you know what came out of Beth? The faces of those who looked to him are radiant. What came out of Beth is a whole album. It's called All My Questions, meaning all my questions for you, God. 
an album for suffering and trials and afflictions. I mean, there's, there's sometimes that you get like one song in, in, you know, contemporary Christian music that's about suffering. This is a whole album as a gift to the church. Like that's, when she was hard pressed, that's what came out. There's a song called You Know. It starts like this. Holy Spirit, you are bigger than depression. You are making intercession. And I know this won't last forever. Down the road, I'll see it differently in hindsight. You know this is not what I would have chosen, but you know how to make me free. There's a radiance there as a result. Verse six, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The word poor there is is a needy, humility, afflicted, wretched. It's not materially poor. He's like, I I have nothing to me, not just financially, like nothingness, broken. But as he cries, the Lord hears and saves him out of all his troubles. Jesus says this in John 16, 33. He says, in this word, you're going to have troubles. I give you peace. Take heart, I've overcome the world. This, this inexplicable supernatural peace that we're told about in Philippians 4. There's an Alistair Begg quote that was given to me by uh, one of Laura's friends who lost her husband in a tragic fire. And she sends us this quote by Alistair Begg. It says this, the peace that comes from the cross of Christ is not an exemption from the battle, but rather the peace comes in the battle. And that is when the Lord gives us that peace. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This is a Christological statement right there in the middle of Psalm 34. Whenever you see in scripture an angel of the Lord, it's like one of many, Gabriel, Michael, seraphim, cherubim, whatever it may be. When you say the, the definite article the, the angel of the Lord, It is a pre-incarnate picture of Christ where God in flesh shows up on the scene prior to taking on flesh and being born of the virgin. So there is the son of God. He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. David was a military man. David, David as a military man knew the most important person goes in the middle with all the ranks Surrounding them so that when the enemy comes, there's a buffer. They can fight off, we save the king. You see this with King Saul whenever he like tiptoes in and he cuts off the edge of Saul's robe to say like, hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And he tiptoes back out. The important person's in the middle. Here, Jesus flips it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're in the middle. I got you. It's what I came for. I came to save you. You're in the middle and I'm, I'm encamped all around and nothing's gonna hurt you that doesn't first pass through my hands and I will redeem your pain. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This is as we sang in Psalm 34 where Shane Bernard writes, the son of God. He doesn't say the angel of the Lord. He says the son of God surrounds you saints. He is with us. This is in Acts 9 where Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And Saul's like, what? I'm not persecuting you. Who, you know, son of God, Jesus, what? No, it's these people. I'm going to Damascus. And he's like, what you do to them, you do to me. I am with them. I am in them. I encamp around them. It's profound. Jesus said, I'll behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age, Matthew 28. He is with you. He's not only by your side, he is on your side. Verse eight, 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Their refuge, Agilum. He's writing in a refuge saying, blessed are you. Hey, you know how we're in this cave? And we're safe on all sides. He's like, that's what it is to be in the Lord. Blessed is the man who takes Agilum, who takes refuge in the Lord. The cave of the Lord with the surrounding. It's again, the angel of the Lord being all around. Uh, my, my mom makes uh, an apple crumb pie that would like stop you in your tracks. It, it's good that she and my dad live 400 miles away in Missouri because I would weigh 400 pounds. I don't have a picture of one because when she makes it, I eat it all uh, with blue bow. It's amazing. But if I showed you a picture of it, you'd be like, nah, I don't know. I've seen better. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not. Maybe it tastes like an old shoe. Maybe it's not even sweet enough. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You gotta taste it. And if you taste it, you will never forget how good that apple crumb pie is. Because tasting is a personal thing. You can look at something and be like, eh, I don't know. And David saying to these, remember, who are distressed, depressed, and in debt, and P.S., all in debt and sin. He's saying, you've got to taste what I taste. You've got to know what I know. It's not just enough to look. You're not just like reading a book about a person. You've got to know this person. You wouldn't believe it. He delivers me from all my enemies. He rescues me. He ransomed me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's an invitation to a very, very personal, intimate thing. It's like, you need to, you've got to taste him. It's not enough just to look or hear my story. Now you do it. You take a bite. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. There's an interview from a while back of Tom Brady, who's a quarterback. He's won three Super Bowls by the age of 27. That's crazy. And he's doing this interview with 60 Minutes, and uh, it's haunting. He's like, he says, well, I, I just don't know what life's about. You know, there's, there's gotta be something else. I mean, three Super Bowls, there's, there's gotta be something. And the interviewer says, hey, which one of those rings is your favorite? And he says, the next one. It's like, oh, brother. Dude, if three ain't enough, four and five, six, it's a, it's a broken cistern. It's, it's empty, it's vain. Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. Like, of course it's gotta be something else. Of course the next one, they said to Rockefeller, how, many, how much money is enough? And he said, one more dollar. It's the same thing, it revealed that idol. So Lord save Tom. But it says, those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. So the young lions, which is top of the animal chain and kingdom, it's like even they suffer and lack want. But those who fear the Lord lack nothing which is Paul in the prison cell writing in Philippians 4, where he says, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is used all the time as an athletic verse, which has nothing to do with athletics. And just prior to that, he says, I have learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. I mean, if you make that the title of a book, you will retire early. Because everybody's like, what? What's the secret of being content in every circumstance? He's like, Jesus. With Jesus, I have strength to do anything. Sitting in a prison cell, dank, dark prison cell. And yet he's like, I got this. It's the richest I have ever been when I was broke as a joke in seminary. I had a twin bed, twin mattress on a concrete floor. 
I was making $8 an hour, like 20 hours a week. I was eating old bread that the seminary would give to us students. Where were y'all then, by the way? But I mean, but I have never been more content in my entire life because in that destitution, I had God and I had everything. I didn't lack, I had no want. Verse 11, come, O children. So now he went from testifying, he's saying, taste and see, now he's gonna preach to them. He says, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? That's like, I mean, they're all like everybody. Like, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to see many days and do good and have good, see good? Then he tells them what? He says, then keep your tongue from evil, your lips from picking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He gives them the instructions. Now, there's a lot of times in Christianity where people are like, my house is built on the rock. I'm built on the rock of Jesus Christ. It's like, oh man, well you actually should have read the scripture because that's not what Jesus said. In Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount, he said, look, there's two people. One built his house on the rock, one built his house on the sand. Same storm came, one fell with a great crash, one stood. You know what the difference is? They both heard the word, one did what it said. The one who did what it said withstood. It's not just enough to know him, we follow him. And as we follow him, the spirit bears all this through us. He's the one that sanctifies us. My children, Hill, Penny, and Judd, they're Elmore children. And they'll always be Elmore children. They can't unson and undaughter themselves. But we've got some family rules. You never make fun of someone. The only thing you hate is sin and Satan. We don't lie, we don't cheat. We've got like Elmore family values. And when they step out of that, I correct them in the same way as like, hey, hey, you want to live like the good life? You want to taste and see? You want to know the knowledge of the fear of the Lord? He's like, do these things. It's going to be good for you. Because remember, these people were in a, they were in a bad place with the distressed and depressed. Then he says this. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and hear his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. I think about our baby monitor with our firstborn son. Uh, The baby monitor was there and when I'd hear him cry, I mean, I would bounce out of bed, go hold him, pray over him. I was just like, I was there. The reason why I specify firstborn son and not like our last child is because by the last child, dude, we had that monitor off. I'm like, I don't care. You're not gonna die, you're fine. Poor kid. Probably cried for three hours in a wet diaper, but he's tough now, so he's, he's, he's good. It's not like that, though. God doesn't turn the monitor off. This is, this is Psalm 121, where he, not, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. His eyes are upon you. You cry, he runs. He hears you with that cry, and he's got you, just wraps you up. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He said this, right? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Now he's saying it again. He's like, he's near to you. And they were brokenhearted. These 400 there in the cave. He's like, he's near to you. You in particular. He is omnipresent. But for those who are humble, those who are brokenhearted, man, he's close. Just face to face, wrapping you up. And saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Uh, Laura, probably nine years ago, you know these iPhone notes? It's like the little yellow notepad deal. We've got one, 
It's called uh, On Suffering. I didn't make this. You think like, oh, pastor guy, you got On Suffering note? No, I don't. Uh, my wife does. And for the last nine years, she has been putting quotes, scriptures throughout this. I mean, it's just like goes on and on and on because she knew the day of affliction's coming. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And so Laura and God preparing her for this day, the cancer was gonna fall, she was ready because she'd set her heart towards that. Like, I know it's gonna come. I don't know what it'll be, but it will be something. It's not prosperity gospel nonsense. There's gonna be afflictions and trials and persecution and tribulation. Acts 14, it says, strengthening the heart of the believers. It is through many trials or tribulations that you must, must enter the kingdom of heaven. Second Corinthians one, the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, but so also does the comfort. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. And if you've like lost someone, you're probably like, no. No, he didn't actually deliver him out of them all. You know, I prayed and, and they died. I prayed for the child and they were, they were lost in utero. I prayed for whatever and he did not deliver me. I prayed that, that I would escape my abuser and he didn't deliver me. Here in the case of death in Isaiah 57, verse one and two, it says, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity, not to calamity, but from it. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, meaning death, who walk in uprightness. Sometimes deliverance, it doesn't look like how we look, but it's deliverance. A baby is not meant to stay in the womb, and yet that's what we're trying to do is we like grasp to this life, and we should. Like all the days ordained before yet one of them came to be. Like God has ordained. There's no such thing as an accidental death. God has ordained the days for you, for everyone, for everyone you've ever known. And all of us are going to die. Every single one of us. But God, for the Christian, will have deliverance to life eternal. The other side. He delivers them out of them all. Then verse 20, affliction will slay, oh sorry, verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. You're like, oh, that's a weird verse. Why'd David say that? David probably wrote it like, man, Goliath, king of Kish, here I am, I'm whole. Like no bones broken. A bone, a bone broken like 3,000 years ago, you didn't, you didn't heal well from that. There's no cast, there's no x-ray machine. That, that, was a, that was a bad thing to go through and you were never gonna be the same as a result. Here he says, not a, not a bone is broken. Look what the Lord did. He delivered me out of my afflictions. But in that, there was a prophecy by the Spirit that goes backwards and forwards. So backwards, you're like, why, why is that a prophecy? What's going on there? In Exodus, with the Passover lamb, he says, you shall not break any of its bones. As the Passover lamb, with the blood over the door, with the angel of death, they escaped death and went out free. There, the Passover lamb, not one of their bones broken. Here in the Psalms, so there's Exodus. Here in the Psalms, again, not one of the bones is broken. Then you go to John 19 during the crucifixion, and the Romans are breaking the legs of the thieves just to fast forward the death. They're like, all right, suffered enough. It's about nighttime. Let's get on with this. So they would break the legs. They would drop, suffocate. Then you take down the dead body. Like, all right, spectacle's over. Well, they get to Jesus to break his bones and they're like, huh, already dead. Take the spear through his side, out come water and blood. It's because of this prophecy. This prophecy, keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. 
In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says that Christ is our Passover lamb. This prophecy right here in Psalm 34, God is incredible. Verse 21, so it says, many of the afflictions of the righteous, now we get the afflictions of the unrighteous. It says the, the righteous, they'll be delivered. The affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Then verse 22. This is incredible. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. The Lord redeems, the word there is nefesh. It's your soul, your spirit. He's like, I got you. This body that is subject to decay, the afflictions, the trials, I got your nefesh, I got your soul. You'll never be lost. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus have crossed over from death to life. They'll never be ashamed. They'll be radiant forevermore. But they're given a new body and a new heaven and new earth, reigning with me forevermore. The Lord redeems the life of the servant. But I think in this culture, we're more concerned about safety than surety. We're all about safety, right? With the airbags and the vaccine and the hand washing. You should get all that. Don't send me an email. Like, that's good. Uh, some lady came to my door. She's like, knock, knock. You're, you know, your kids are playing in your front yard. I'm like, yeah. She's like, they're, they're, they could get kidnapped or hit by a car. I'm like, oh, they could. She's like, yeah, you, you should put them in the backyard. I'm like, no, we're teaching them to, are they within the street? I'm like, lady, you should, you should read less news. It's okay. God's got them. There's this quote in Christianity that says, I think it was written by a really wise man, but I think the, the verse, I'm probably under, or quote, it's probably out of context, but I think it's terrible. It says, the safest place in all the world is in the center of God's will. Tell that to Jesus. He got crucified. Was he in the center of God's will? Absolutely, it was not safe. Tell it to Isaiah who was sawn in two. Tell it to Joseph who was accused falsely of rape and put in prison. Tell it to Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband died at the hands of the Alka Indians. Tell it to Bonhoeffer, who died in a concentration camp, or, or Betsy and Corey Tenboom. It was anything but safe. But it was good. And so C.S. Lewis writes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you've got the child who represents us. She says about Aslan, who represents Jesus, then isn't he safe, said Lucy? Safe, said Mr. Bieber. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It says none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. None of them will be condemned who take refuge in him. We are in debt because of our sin, but if we take refuge in Jesus, we will not be condemned. It says if you reject the free offer of Christ, you already stand condemned. That's John 3. You stand condemned before an almighty God. It's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. But if you place yourself under Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It goes on to say Christ crucified, not only that, but raised. Who is there there to condemn? Christ at the right hand intercedes for us. My kids, we have a tree fort in the backyard and I, I needed a slide. And so I got this really bad one off Craigslist and I pieced it together and they, were, they saw me doing it. And uh, I get up to the top, I thought it was gonna be like hero dad and they're gonna zip down it. And they're like, uh-uh, we're not getting, it's like 10 feet off the ground. They're like, we're not getting the slide. I'm like, come on, go. And they're like, no, 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 we're not going. So 
So I was like, ah, hang on. And I get down, all six foot one, in this tiny little kid slide. It's like one of those loop-de-loop things, but it's a black hole. They don't know. And I like scoot in, go down the slide, pop out the other side. I'm like, see? And they're like, ah! And they're just zip, 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 zip all day. They go down it now in their rollerblades. They love it. It's what Jesus did for us. They're here in a cave. David's saying this psalm, take refuge in the Lord. Jesus goes into the cave of the tomb to conquer sin, death, and Satan for you. He went into the cave first so that when you have to go into the cave of suffering or affliction or death, you know you're coming out the other side and it's gonna be good. It's not gonna be bad. This is not the end. There is more to come and he will see you through. He's sovereign above the storm. He will give you joy in the storm. That's what he does. He came out the other side to say, see, it's good. The Lord is good. Taste and see. So stand and magnify the Lord and exalt him with me together because he is so good.